In episode 53 of Design EDU Today, Jana Sakelian, Associate Professor at the American University in Washington, D.C., joins us to discuss why in an open source industry with a lot of self-taught professionals, there is such a lack of sharing of course material and student work amongst interactive and web design educators. Jana also shares her perspective on the elusive balance of visual design and front-end development training in design programs. Finally, Jana also discusses a variety of ideas, including the value of using WordPress templates and approaches to web design in the classroom. Welcome to Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary screen-based interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Jana Sakelian. Jana is an Associate Professor at the American University in Washington, D.C., Yana's practice emphasizes an interdisciplinary approach to making and conceptual inquiry, with a special interest in interactive physical interface design and interactive storytelling. During her 10 years of professional experience, Yana has worked on a variety of design and media projects for corporate clients as well as nonprofit organizations, including Target Corporation, Johns Hopkins University, the Maryland Historical Society, and the U.S. Postal Service. Yana earned her Master's of Fine Arts degree from the Department of Digital and Media at the Rhode Island School of Design, and her work has been exhibited and published nationally. Uh, Welcome, Yana. Hi, Gary. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited to have you. So to kind of let everybody know, the listeners, both of us were jurors on the 2016 Student Web Awards contest, but you've been a part of the contest since its inception in 2014. Mm. Can you talk about the rationale and the need for the contest? Yeah, Gary, absolutely. Well, before I say anything, I must really know that the whole project is a brainchild of this fantastic um, individual, Robert Fryer, who is a designer and an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Stout. And uh, we met in 2012 at the um, International Digital Media Association conference while we were presenting our own work. And because both of us were in academia working with web courses and web content at the time, we got to discuss what was happening around and just kind of the shortage of information and sharing that we both felt were present or non-present, as the case may be, in the digital design and web design area of academia. And at the time, do you remember um, this book called Above the Fold? Yep. All right. Fantastic. So then you remember that for a few years, and I think they had the last one in 2014, Above the Fold ran this um, web design slash digital media competition for students throughout the years of their publication. And I think they started in 2000. uh, Don't quote me on that, but I believe 2010 or 2011. So that was the only avenue at the time for any such competition to exist. And um, 
that just seemed kind of lumpsided, right? So the need in our conversation around, well, what, what, what can we do about it, right? So what would be the platform for sharing not just kind of this faculty presentation of student work, but how can we empower students to really um, not just model the industry platform? Because if you think about it, the web design is such an applicable discipline, right? And so where would you go to see such work on a student level? Like, honestly, throughout that time, other than going across, you know, the classroom to see what other people are doing or reaching out to institutions, the visibility of this work is really limited. Because even if you think about common publications such as, you know, communication arts or um, How Magazine, they just don't have that level of display. You know, you either have to get pretty sophisticated or maybe there is some graduate work, but just for everyday student web design, you just don't really see it unless you go scouting for portfolios. So on the one hand, uh, we felt that there was this need for display of student work, just not for any given program recruitment necessarily, but just seeing what happens with the landscape of this learning process. And two, from the academic standpoint, there's always a question of, well, here we are in, in all these institutions and mine happens to be liberal arts school, right? And there is a lot of conversation around undergraduate research and the importance of it and what it is and what is it in the arts. So in the arts, the undergraduate research as we see it is really all about applicable work, right? So when you get into the area of web design, well, how do you propagate and, and where do you make it visible and in which shape does that exist? So we've heard a lot of conversation around undergraduate research benefits just again across the disciplines so you know we talk about the student participation that includes uh, you know self-realization and disciplinary knowledge and kind of move forward the career goals and for us as practicing designers web designers it results in actual projects and if you have undergraduate research well then shouldn't you have some form of evaluation or peer review and where does it go and who sees it and you know <laughs> who shares that so through these conversations we decided that well um you know let's see if we can have an alternative to something above the fold was very much an inspiration um mm -hmm. something similar to about the fold competition. And perhaps we can look at undergraduate programs and see if we can start with the small scale review of web design and, you know, what are people doing and how are they doing it and, and what are those deliverables? And that's really how the whole thing originated. And um, I think the about the fold really had their last competition in 2014. And that's kind of where we started hours, you know, because it took us a couple of years to really organize the concept and figure out how we're going to do it. And so in 2015, which was the second year of running it, we had, um, I mean, it, it sort of became fairly successful through the word of mouth as far as our small competition is concerned. And in the second year, we had um, 89 submissions from 34 institutions across 16 countries which was an impressive return, but really we did a lot of outreach and publishing on various platforms. I mean, it took, it took some doing. Okay. So I, I really love the whole, cause it, again, reiterating for listeners, I was a juror in 2016 and I never remember talking to you and 
or or Robert and and coming up with this was a base this was a way of basically like what are other schools doing curricularly <laughs> yeah exactly and you know it's just we don't get as much you would think that it'd be some magic portal where you know only unicorn faculty that teach web design get together and just telepathically share secrets but it's not at all the case and the lack of dialogue can really be quite shocking unless you develop personal connections there's no hub where it exists and so that that was you know one of the earlier goals i know that um robert now is moving forward and trying to conceptualize this larger project called the global studio which would be the next step mm-hmm. yeah and i i'm glad you brought up in that uh, idea of like you know, we don't share our stuff. I mean, my stuff is online, but it's not, you would kind of have to know where to look to find mm-hmm. it. Whereas um, there's very few people who have it like online, easy access. And I'm wondering why. Is it because not a lot of people mm. are teaching it? Well, so I think it's a two part problem. I think one, um, I'm not really sure if not enough people are teaching it. Well, first of all, let's define what it is, right? I think that would be helpful (laughs) because it exists in so many forms. um, And this is where the question comes in. Well, how do you teach web design, right? And and so what is your criteria and what's the deliverable? And so because there is no standardized way of approaching it and um, something that we've talked about before, Gary, that audience may not be aware of is this understanding of applicable discipline and industry needs. Because I would venture to guess that most programs, at least if they're associated with graphic design departments, the goal in the end is to place your student, right? Or to at least give them the tools to have the career or to start the career they're desiring. And that will vary regionally. So what might be needed skill here in D.C. area may not look the same, you know, somewhere in, I don't know, Idaho or Alabama or someplace else. So uh, so the rate and I think that creates this uneven distribution of the type of skills that are requested, required. And you will you would assume that the baseline is the same across the board, but I find even that varies. So for instance, questions are, well, do you teach interface design? Do you prioritize um, front end development skills? Which tool is it important that a certain tool is associated with it? You know, to which depth do you go? I mean, these are all questions that each faculty makes their own choices based on all these various criteria that they review. So I think that wide variation creates some difficulty. Number two, I think that um, the platform for sharing, like you mentioned, there's just nothing centralized. So I've spoken to various faculty and they all do it differently. Some run um, servers from you know that are available in their institutions, and so they house their own house server, and that's where everything lives. Some use some sort of rely on students to provide their own hosting. It could be free hosting or GitHub um, accounts or however they decide to handle it. And so then it's really on the side of the student, and you know faculty may or may not make an effort to archive work in some shape or form. And the other consideration is, well, is the work even in the shape in which a faculty wants to present it? Because these are all complicated skills. And I find that this finalized piece, something that's showable and something that you can look at and say, okay, well, 
it's I'm, I'm proud to kind of put my faculty name behind it and showcase it. Um, that may or may not happen. Some programs simply can't afford multiple levels of web design classes, or maybe historically they don't have a way of developing it over levels. So again, you know, it's 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 really just everywhere. I do want to bring something up, and I'm, I'm so this semester, you know, and I've been lucky to where. Um, since I've been at American, you know, I was brought in as as this person who needs to figure out our digital side of things. And so I got to make choices and continue to make these choices and try things out. And so this semester, um, I'm teaching a beginner web design course, and I decided to use CodePen as our main platform. And um, in a way that, you know, that sort of makes sharing very easy. It's kind of like having your own Vimeo channel, really, for motion work. So I wonder if tools such as CodePen that kind of provide this innate sharing capability and, you know, visibility and just putting things out there could be valuable. Um, a question about CodePen, because mm -hmm. I've, um, the reason I ask about CodePen is it doesn't, so if you want to self-host fonts, you can't unless you get the CodePen Pro pres uh, subscription or the same thing, like, and I think more importantly is like images. You can't really put images in unless you either host them somewhere else and you're mm -hmm. linking to them or you, you know, you pay for the CodePen Pro subscription. So how do you use CodePen? Well, this is my first semester using it beyond simply distributing tutorials. And keep in mind, I am using it for the introduction class. So I'm, I, and it's a test run for me. So I'm still very much in the process of deciding the pros and cons of such an approach. So personally, I do not mind my students hosting their images elsewhere. And there are so many cloud services these days. Really, it's it's not an issue for us. And as far as font question, again, at this beginner level, you know, let's keep in mind that depending on the program, in our case, in this beginner level, students haven't yet acquired type skills advanced enough for them to make very complicated choices about their typography. So I find Google Fonts, smart choice of Google Fonts works beautifully. It pairs well with CodePen and it allows students to focus on other fundamental skills of web development um, that I feel take priority. So again, at this level, I found cloud services for images and um, Google Fonts for type worked pretty well. I could go off uh, on CodePen, so uh, <laughs> I like it. I like it, and I just, like, struggle with, like, the, you know, like, some of the things that I want to teach, because I, I do want to show them how to use, because um, you've got, you've got um, Google Fonts, and you've got Typekit, where, mm -hmm. and Typekit, you know, whether you're using my fonts or Typekit, I mean, they're all basically the same. They use JavaScript to inject Correct. Um, but they all inject it via the at font face CSS property. So I kind of feel like if I'm going to show them how to use Google fonts or I'm going to show them how to use Typekit, I at least want them to just see how to use, you know, see how these other things are mimicking that. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, just pedagogically, is it really even necessary? Probably not. <laughs> well, I wonder, and that's something I also struggle with. I mean, let's let's remember there's probably not one single universal answer to this, right? Um, and time will tell <laughs> in some ways. Um, so I would say that working with 
fonts is important, but there will be tools out there probably every year that will introduce one method or another of implementing those. So to me, the technical handling of the font, whether it's through font face or simply linking um, Google fonts, well, those are two fundamental techniques, you know, as, as long as there's some understanding of either. Um, I would rather focus on some other fundamentals of CSS. And I feel that at least for my beginner class, I'm letting it be and really prioritizing other methods, but it'll be interesting. I mean, next semester, I'm going to teach the next level to it. So that's when we're going to come up against the question of <laughs> where does that go from there? What is the name of this course, by the way? All right. So it is Emerging and Digital Media One, okay. where that we really treat as a web design one. Now, there was a very strong, um, there was a very strong consideration behind naming it what it is. And I know that it sounds nothing like web design. <laughs> and our um, philosophy on naming the course was that, well, today it's web design depending on the needs of our area and how our students are placed and where are they getting hired. And uh, I mean, who knows, maybe two years from now, it will be, you know, developing for mobile super phone unicorn. You know, you just, you just, Web design is a core skill, but we also wanted to leave some room for interpretation of what exactly that means. So we didn't want to name it HTML and CSS development one, simply because, you know, media always transfers and, you know, we just want to know what's next. Yeah. And we're, I mean, we're, we did the same thing. We originally had a, a, a couple of courses called design and technology print design and technology screen and I, mm. you know and i was like well why don't we just drop the hyphen screen and the hyphen print and mm -hmm. designed in technology it's pretty universal i don't <laughs> you know whatever technology is in the future so just like change them to design and technology one design and technology two and mm -hmm. you can kind of move forward no i i think everybody's struggling with like that universality and in, in naming conventions yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you do, um, you know, on the one hand, you kind of want to have a personality to your course titles too, right? And um, not to mention that there is sort of academic schedule that only allows you to change things so yeah. often. <laughs> it's probably just for your brand, whatever the program's brand is, it's also useful to think a little longer term. Well, you know, I, I think that's funny that you mentioned like, you know, the, the title having like the, you know, the personality of the course where I find students ignore the titles like they mm. just like it's like that's the branding class that's the web class that's the motion class mm -hmm. they self-title it themselves they really do and and this is a and this is a good question right i mean i'm sure if we had a student in on this discussion they'd probably just say oh who cares we just need to know where the credits go and just title it very simply uh -huh. <laughs> but i think it's a similar question as to this universal design paradigm of well, do you educate your client, right? And so, well, do you educate your audience and do you really sort of follow the change you want to see in the world? I know this sounds like a very high-end concept, but I think using language is important. And I think the way you think and talk about topics you want to introduce will also set the tone. So I feel that, yeah, if I if, if my course is only about training vocational skills, that maybe I'll name it HTML and CSS one, but it's not, it's so much more than that. It's a conversation about design thinking in media, right? And how the media changes and is just more than a simply a technical formula. 
Yeah. I'm going to jump back to um, some previous questions that I had I'd written down and in, they're in regards to the, you know, to the student web awards, but we, we were having conversations um, during the judging of it because the work, I don't remember, I don't know the, the, remember the ratio, but a lot of work was, you know, pre-existing templates Oh yeah. from Squarespace mm-hmm. or WordPress and they were modified, but at the time, I kind of looked at them. I just kind of dismissed them. I was like, well, you know, this isn't mm-hmm. design. But <laughs> I, I had a conversation on this podcast with uh, Lauren Miranda. Uh, she's an assistant professor of graphic design at Judson University, just right outside of Chicago. And she's like full on. She's like, yeah, I'm teaching them WordPress. And she's like, you know, regionally, it makes sense. You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of freelance work for people to build, you know, to like really manipulate a, a WordPress template in Chicago. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I agree. I think it's, um, there's always going to be a market for that type of work. And I think, um, it gets a little murkier when you enter this concept into something like a competition evaluation, because in the end of the day, you know, if you're paid to modify a template, no one's really going to question your methods so long that in the end your client receives the deliverable they were hoping for. And in the competition, you're really trying to assess and evaluate skills that are visible. So I, I and, and I remember these conversations of ours. I think they're still very much, well, we still need to talk about them. And um, for yeah. me anyway... It's not so much the problem of using templates or not using templates. I think it's the problem of recognition where contributions are. In the same way, so if you think about a template as a team project, right? Like let's for a second dismiss the notion that that's a pre-made anything. Yeah. Let's for a second assume that instead of thinking of it as a template, we think of it as a team effort. And yet we're only evaluating one participant. And so just like with team evaluation, we want to ask, well, that's very great. You know, there are all these virtues of the project, which would be the template, right? But where does the individual contribution come in? And where is it visible for this individual to make their mark on this particular expression of the project? So I try to think of template use by anyone from from that angle. Yeah. So if it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, but... Also, if you can touch a little bit, like, so outside of the context of the, of the competition, but isn't like general, like, I'm wondering if like, maybe I should introduce how to manipulate WordPress templates or Squarespace templates or just whatever CMS du jour um, right. as a well, curriculum. Oh, okay. So I have very strong personal opinions on that. Yeah. Um, and my strong personal opinions are, I'm a purist in a sense where... I believe, at least for my curriculum, so the way our curriculum is structured also probably is useful to know is that we have two levels of web design. And, um, you know, those two levels is where we introduce all the skills we possibly can. And then once students are gone through these two classes, they're kind of on their own. So um, I believe that introducing WordPress as a concept is valuable in the probably kind of somewhere, even though I haven't done that personally, it may be valuable uh, for us as a program to do somewhere in the second level of second web design course. But in the end of the day, if somebody doesn't have the basics, they're just going to kind of scrub by, in my opinion, and try to fill in the blanks without knowing what they're doing. And some might be more successful at it than others just by sheer luck alone. I 
don't really like taking that approach. I feel that with strong basics, an individual may venture out on their own, and that has happened, and you know, maybe do an independent study or just simply go out there and get more help. But they have the skills to take on, so to speak, WordPress and be able to function under its constraints with knowledge that they have versus introducing it in a formulaic method in the classroom that only allows people to understand that little dimension of modifying the templates as opposed to really understanding how the whole system works. Okay. Um, so another question, you know, this is a discussion we had uh, during the, the judging was, so entries from the students had to be functioning HTML and CSS. So in order to have a submission, students had to have pretty strong front-end development skills. Um, so at the time, we also discussed what was the value of clickable prototypes built in Envision. And so now that prototyping software is starting to do, uh, you know, pretty much become ubiquitous, mm. have you rethought how you feel about the value of prototypes? Or not even rethought, because we never like really came no, to terms with those. Yeah, we haven't. Um, so yeah, I keep I keep questioning that both for um, the classes that I teach and for the future of the competition too. And I think there is great value in simply, and, and by the way, just for the record, I love Envision. Mm -hmm. I mean, we use it for our mobile design classes all the time because you know it just simply takes um, the learning curve to learn any meaningful programming for anything native for the iOS platform is, is so high and yet all you really need to have as a prototype in order to communicate your designs. So in a way, similar applies to the web design and prototyping. I think the bigger question is, well, how do you categorize it, right? Because for me, uh, someone who is uh, well-versed in beautiful interfaces, usable interfaces, but uses prototyping software to compile them rather than develop them, isn't... Um, you know, a f you know, just not necessarily is a fully interactive designer, right? They might be very, I almost feel like graphic designers now are expected to understand usability. They're expected to understand interface. So for me, it falls under the umbrella of visual design. Yes. And personally, again, like a bit of a purist there, but I feel that interactive design must um, represent knowledge of and, and that technical know-how and technical skill i'm not but however i do think that there is nothing wrong with including visual designers or at least visual design category um in something like web design competitions because it's not front end web design competition <laughs> it's student web design competition so i think if the context is set clearly and if the categories are understood correctly that could be a very powerful way for someone to express their ideas you know on usability and ux design without having to develop anything but the boundaries just need to be made clear yeah then that perfectly segues into my next question uh so personally i'm now fully in the camp that interactive design students need to know HTML and CSS. And I equate it to, it's like print designers need to understand paper and ink <laughs> and how ink is applied to the paper. So mm. you said you've already shared a little bit about what your philosophy is on HTML and CSS. Do you have like what you think is the ideal amount that a, <laughs> that a, a visual designer or a 
should know? Uh, well, okay. Uh, I might have, um, I might have a slightly higher expectations. I think a visual designer, if they, uh, well, okay, let, let, but let's, let, let me ask you this, um, visual designer or interactive designer? Um, no visual designer. So I'm going to, mm. I'm going to, I'm coming in front from this, uh, uh, as I stumble around with this. So mm -hmm. from the perspective of somebody a junior designer working at an interactive design firm where they are part of a team that includes the front end developers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, first of all, just, just FYI, and I'm sure you have similar experiences. I hear from former students all the time who went on to work in teams with developers who say, anytime somebody understands that I can at least prototype the very basic page navigation and layout, that's just such a huge bonus. You know, and they're actually finding themselves acquiring a little more responsibilities in that area. So my personal philosophy is that a visual designer should know enough of HTML and CSS if they want to have anything to do with web design. Now, if they're never going to touch a web page or, or any, you know, alike, then I guess it doesn't matter. But if they want to have anything to do with that, in my opinion, they shouldn't have enough skills to execute a simple functioning website with a basic navigation, with basic structure, with the ability to go from one place to the next, with develop a display of the content in text and image, not necessarily rich content, but the basic content that they need to handle. So for instance, anything they can do with, um, well, I'm going to give you this example, bear with me, with like, say, PowerPoint, right? Like if you were to prototype something with a very basic software, nothing like Envision even, just PowerPoint, they should be able to execute that with HTML and CSS. And here's why I think that. I think because even if they never have to touch it again, understanding of these building blocks is just such a fundamental knowledge that allows you familiarity with the medium and allows you the appreciation of the craft. And frankly, just confirms your commitment. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost akin to having a plumber who, you know, never knows the materials of what plumbing is made out of, right? They may not manufacture plumbing parts, but they should certainly know about the materials and kind of logic and the physics that goes into it. And so I, I tend to think of it in the same way with the web design and front-end development, is that, no, you don't have to know all the latest and greatest techniques, but I feel like it's absolutely necessary to know the building blocks to understand your medium. Have you started messing around with the CSS grid spec yet? I have. I have not taught it um, yet. Uh, I think the grid is the, well, it's fantastic. I, I think it does require you thinking very differently. It's almost in some bizarre ways going back to where you seriously consider a visual layout before you do any development. Yeah. And um, yeah, what about you? Do you find that your students have you introduced it? How did you? What the reception there was like? No, I haven't done it yet, and that's why I asked if you did. I, I basically right now the what I'm doing is I do a flipped classroom. So, I for homework the the students conduct a bunch of screencasts that I put together on HTML and CSS. <laughs> and right now for them to like mock, you know, like do simple like grids, simple layouts, I show them both floats and mm -hmm. flexbox. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm now thinking like I should probably, no, I don't, not probably, I need to redo those and just go with grid and flex box. Um, but I just haven't done it yet. So I was just curious. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, here, here's my thought on that. Since I have the luxury of having two levels of web design class to spread this over, my thought was, you know what, I'm going to go with traditional positioning, um, for the first level and CSS flexbox for the second. Now I have pointed out flexbox is this phenomena and a little bit more of an advanced concept that exists. Because I just think that depending on what it is you're designing, I think completely abandoning the old positioning model may not be um, the wisest thing to do. Uh, Even if it ends up never being used, I feel like it's a concept that needs to be learned. I will, however, say that I'm having a bit of anxiety introducing floats, and I'll tell you why, actually. I'd be curious to know your opinion on that. Can we geek out for a second here? Yeah. All right, all right, great. So um, we just talked about this positioning in floats, for instance, and of, lo- of course, float is the property that's used with static positioning to, um, you know, move elements on the page. So I found that I can teach my entire intro class with inline block display property mm-hmm. and bypass float almost absolutely. Yeah. Instead, with when it comes to wrapping the images, and I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. I mean, floats have been traditionally just such a robust feature to work with, and I feel like they should know about it a little more. And I, so I've been trying to look up articles and opinions as to, well, pros and cons of each, and like floats seem to lose out every time, mm-hmm. aside from the fact that they were just historically so implemented everywhere. Yeah, and I, I've come across the same material as you. Is that it's again with like basically with HTML and CSS, there's only there's no one way to do something, and everything has a purpose. So, but that said, as a universal f- fix all, yeah, it would mm. make sense that inline block would fix like the clear fix issue where you know it's not the the parents not clearing the child when you're putting down backgrounds. I think doesn't the uh, inline block avoid that? Pretty much. I mean, <laughs> there, there there are specific cases where I can make a case for um, using the floats, but they're you know they're pretty specific, and it, and they really you have to get a little more complex in your design than the first level of web design will <laughs> allow you to get. Um, but again, it would be one of those bizarre scenarios where, yeah, but if you leave it out completely from teaching it, right, like then you're essentially glazing over what about a decade of development. <laughs> and if somebody discovers these recipes or references as they go on to, you know, build upon their skills, they will be at a disadvantage. Yeah, but also at the same time, I mean, I I wrestle with the idea that students need to, do they need to be the front-end developers? No. Do they need to have the, the amount of skill that a front-end developer needs? No. I But I think they need to be able to have their stuff in the browser to look at it, to evaluate it, because the scale of when you like make something in Sketch or XD mm, mm-hmm. is goofy. I mean, I it's like a poster. Yeah, it really is. When you look at it on the screen... You know, and then when you look at it printed full size in the wall, it's different. And I know, but students, when they see it designed on a screen, they think, oh, well, it's going to be viewed on a screen. It's designed on a screen. There's no scale issue. So I want them to know enough HTML and CSS to just throw some things in the browser 
So like, mm-hmm. you can, oh, okay. Yeah, my design choices, my visual design choices are going to work. Mm-hmm. And so what's the quickest way to get them to do that? Visual, I mean, the inline block would probably be quicker than floats. Uh, it would be. It would be. I mean, if, if the speed is your concern, then definitely. I mean, I would say if speed takes priority over... Um, which is not to say it's a bad thing, but but just let's take a hypothetical scenario and say the speed takes priority over foundation understanding on how everything works on a very basic level. I would say, why not a framework? I mean, in that you sort of bypass all of that, really, yeah. and you just rely on a framework. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, so there are all these different levels on which to build. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And and that's probably where frameworks are actually useful is just that once you do have basic understanding when you're now just going into speed of like regular workaday life design workflow, that's where they come in useful. Can you talk so you're you're lucky you have two web design courses. <laughs> um I think the first one's digital and emerging media design and then one. experience design interactive media. Is that the second course or is that a uh, no, together. digital and emerging media design has a second level, which oh, has okay. a title number two assigned to it. And then we get to the experience design interactive media, which is currently um, I'm teaching as a true UX introduction course, right? So we go over um, a very set UX process, including um, design research, planning, personas to a high degree, um, you know, flowcharting, wireframing, paper prototyping, and it's currently taught from the perspective of mobile design. Now, I don't necessarily think it will always be a mobile design, but mobile design has served us well in the past because in a way it's um it's a really good topic to look at when you think about flexibility of what context is. I find that it gives more of a perspective uh, for students to understand um, temporal, spatial, attention, just contextual placement much, much better. And um, it so, so in the past, when mobile design was still fairly new, right, um, I taught it around the media more so. But these days, I feel like I'm structuring this course around um, topics more so. So it's a lot more idea and topic-centric. And a couple of um, areas that we explore is sustainability, and social issues. And so really it's becoming much more user research um, focused than it is a media focus. Yeah, that's pretty much how I do it. Like when they walk into class, I don't say they're going to build an app. I don't say they're going to build a website. It's like, okay, you're going to go out and do research. You're going to go out in the community. You're going to do research. Okay, you found a problem. Now you're going to make something to solve that problem. And they always lean towards, oh, we're going to make an app to solve it oh you found it yeah i know and it's very very difficult in fact i find that's a biggest stumbling block even in, so so i have a list of words to avoid during our discussions fairly early on so you know nobody's allowed to say well our app will do this right so instead you have to talk about it in human terms and really um just understand what the solution is outside of the button or the feature. You know, you, you, you match the features to your needs, really. So we talk about defining the needs and coming up with, you know, meeting the needs in a way that isn't technology dependent. I almost did backflips because um, one um, student, she, 
she really like took it to heart. And so she was like, oh, like this, like trying to like get information about bus stops and like where to go next and, and stuff like that. And this was in the inner harbor of, of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, I-, I need to solve that problem. It's just like too hard to like navigate. Mm. And so, of course, everybody else who like, you know, had a, you know, like had the problems with the transportation systems, like wanted to make a, an app. And she's like, but she it's an interactive like kiosk billboard for the bus stop. Mm-hmm. The only one who like broke outside of the app. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I think that's Thank important you. too, right? To understand that mobile doesn't mean an app. I mean, mobile really refers to the context of where you are and how things are used. I mean, mobile could be a little card you pull out of your pocket while you're walking around. You know? <laughs> and so the thinking of experience from that perspective seems to really resonate with the student of yours. I'd be also doing um, backflips on that. One out of 17. <laughs> oh, one out of 17. Well, you know, I wonder if it would make... It would make for an interesting experiment to introduce a project in a course like this that is completely down outside of a mobile device, but yet has to be mobile, right? Or maybe it's um, a physical. I mean, you know, you have to be careful because at that point you really go into the area of, you know, industrial design or an object design. But that would be fantastic if you had more than one chance of teaching UX in a, you know, in a four-year program. Mm-hmm. But you're like... If you've only got one shot, one class, three credits at UX, what do you do? Well, okay, so I'm of, I'm of a dual mind there because on the one hand, you have a really um, big responsibility to your students to give them the skills and the language and the tools to succeed in whatever they do after that class, right? So for most, that means job placement. But on the other hand, taking no risks and no experimentation will move us no further that is true so i'm i'm of a you know i'm kind of of a big mind of you know what some years it's worth a risk to devote a semester to an experiment and see what happens as opposed to year after year kind of repeating a pattern um, because at least then you're kind of you know you're giving yourself a chance to stumble upon a discovery yeah that may have not otherwise happened um i have to say for me personally i tend to gauge sort of read the room you know and see what students i have and what their strengths are and whether or not a more structured approach or uh, more freedom would benefit it's a judgment call right and so of course i'm taking the responsibility of making that choice and making that decision based on my personal bias alone <laughs> um but you know that's um that's a part of my job is to make those calls and see how they they end up um can you talk a little bit about or a lot <laughs> uh, <laughs> about so you've got digital and emerging media design one and two okay. can you talk about what they learn across both of those and like where do you split it up mm. so i would say the biggest and so the first level out of the sequence of those two courses is really where the big paradigm shift occurs from, you know, practical kind of systematized production design to more of a conceptualized UX process research. So in the first um, level, and as I mentioned right now, it's mobile oriented, but really it doesn't have to be. It's really all about UX process, like really just involved 
um, research. And the second level, as it stands now, serves as a capstone class. So um, we take a look at all of the skills we've accumulated thus far. And by the way, my students also, of course, take print courses. So they are going to have this pool of skills by the time their senior semester comes around to draw upon. And so the model for the course is the same in terms of research approach and methodologies, but the topic and the media that gets explored in that capstone um, is individualized per student. So your emerging media, your digital and emerging media design too is the capstone course? As it stands right now, correct. Oh, that's interesting. It, yeah, and again, you know, we, we sort of left it out there. Um, to see what would be the useful skills to introduce. And that's always up for debate. And what we found was that we don't really have any space to implement portfolio design in a capstone right now. So we wish we had an extra course. We talked about it forever. It might still happen that just kind of a one credit throughout the entire program where we supervise portfolio creation. But it hasn't happened yet, and we just simply don't have credits to spare. So um, in that course ended up being a good spot, again, because it happens in the last semester, for both capstone and portfolio development. So I always, when I teach it, which is most of the time, I always make sure to take at least half of the semester to um, develop online, uh, strong online portfolio. Um, we do this fall exit interviews in that class. So that's something I have not noticed and have not mentioned before, but our design program actually does require uh, for each graphic design major senior to have an exit interview where they do the full presentation of their work much like they would at the job interview. And so we work towards that because we want them to come out being ready <laughs> as much as we possibly can. Yeah, and um, I have a, a question, follow-up question about portfolios, mm -hmm, uh, online portfolios. And I've been really thinking about that lately. And and the impetus for for thinking about it was I had a student who, I, you know, we're educators. We, people are asking, I get all kinds of people asking me like, hey, do you know what, I mean, you know, I'm looking for a junior designer, I'm looking for an intern, you know, can you suggest anybody? And this one um, person asked me for somebody who did, you know, like branding, you know, across media, you know, like print, web, and and I had this like perfect person in mind and and she's I know she's like worked for a couple different startups and so she's like you know like been on the ground floor of the branding across the things and so when I went to like you know kind of recommend her she didn't have a portfolio well and that's why work. you allocate some space for it in one of the courses <laughs> yeah and, but the so then I and so that made me to like think about it's like but where because mm -hmm. I think I think at the at the at the senior level, it's kind of already too late because they, they need this for, for internships, don't they? Yes. Yes. So here's how I handle it personally. So even though this is the course where we officially, and by the way, when I say portfolio, I don't mean they just make online portfolio on that course. They already have one. So that course is for bettering what they have and preparing. Cause of course the portfolio presentation they do during in-person interviews has nothing. I mean, it has, in, in a way, it has everything to do with their online portfolio. It's a branding system, really. But they don't show their websites because the format of a website is meant to be experienced very differently. So they prepare a whole different presentation for in-person interviews. It has the same projects, you know, obviously same rhetoric and philosophy, but it's not the same format. Neither, in my opinion, it should be. 
So what happens in our program, um, the first time I request that students create a portfolio at all happens at a 300-level course in that digital and emerging media too. So I simply make it um, a two-week project where I introduce them to free platforms. They don't develop a website for their portfolio. My, Again, my opinion is that's really an overkill and there is no need for it. And I'd rather them invest energies in developing a project rather than um, portfolio shell. Unless there's so there is something about their development skills that they absolutely must showcase, but even so, I just you know I just don't see the need. Um, so this is so at that level, a 300 level course is the first time I ask them to package five of their projects, and two of them have to come from my class. And this is when we talk about well, what do the images look like, and how do you talk about your work, and you know what's interesting about your work. And then the same happens in the um, experience design one in the fall. Uh, it's not so much a part of the class. We allocate some weeks to kind of guide people through it. At that point, they already have had or, you know, some platform that they have chosen and they stick to it or they switch it. Uh, and then as a so as a faculty of graphic design department, we then do a full reviews of all of our majors and we have little um, evaluation packets that we fill out and send it to them so that by the time they come in their final semester in the spring, they already have all this language. Now, it hasn't been necessarily handled in a robust way through classes, but they have worked on it, they've thought on it, they had feedback on their pieces, they sort of know what to embark on. And so that's when in their final semester, they really make a push to package it as well as they can. All right. So I just kind of noticed the time. So um, just one more follow-up. Well, not a follow-up question, just a general blanket question I want to ask you. Um, so if we haven't already covered it, like if you could do whatever you wanted Mm. What kind of courses or projects would you like to see interactive design programs include? Uh, well, I would love to see a lot more collaboration um, than currently happens, preferably interdisciplinary. There's so much, I mean, there's always so much talk about this undergraduate research and the interdisciplinary boundaries. But the truth is, every time something like that wants to happen, there are questions of, well, how are the credits distributed? And, you know, do the students, can they use these courses? And, and there's so many just bureaucratic um, systems in place that may not compel a student to engage in something like this. But, I mean, imagine how amazing it would be to see more computer scientists working with designers. I mean, that would be my... Um, you know, absolute holy grail to see a course that um, is production oriented that can really serve up a deliverable that's functional and considered and perspective can inform each other. Yeah. And, and that's the, the holy grail is how do you make the legit? I don't, you know, I, <laughs> logistically, is it really that hard or is it more just, you know, reaching across the aisle and just simply asking and building that relationship? I suppose it differs by institution. Yeah. So depending on institutional policies, I think it's, we run kind of like in the same, um, it, it's the same old question. Well, how much of something is personal responsibility and how much of something is a legislative responsibility, right? Uh, <laughs> so um, I feel like historically these types of initiative have been placed in that personal responsibility er arena, whereas of, 
some support as far as simply allocating time and classroom meetings and space and student schedules and credit allocation have to come from legislative prioritization. Uh, James Madison, JMU, they have something really unique there that I would like to see other places do is they have a, a center. If I, I can't remember the name of it anymore, but it's essentially the center it's, that has its own building. The center also has its own course prefix and numbers. So, and they also put out like an annual or some, I don't know how like the cycle for, but they also put out a call, you know, constantly asking for collaborative classes. And so because of this, you know, because of the way, so they have, so it has its own classroom. So, you know, there's no like complaining about like, oh, we don't have the space right. for it because they mm-hmm. have their own. They And they say like, we're running this many classes a semester. So they've already got the schedule worked out. Um, and because of the credit, you know, being its own number, it doesn't, um, it can, it, they've they've figured out so it's like easily adaptable into other people's you know programs as you know it can count for this or it can count for that um, by just you know like simple like paperwork and so it then so they cleared all the logistical hurdles and people can just collaborate and make whatever class they want whatever natural pairings seems to make sense and so and and so being it and there's you know what there's it's now gotten to the point where there's like people you know they have like more submissions for course offerings than they can actually facilitate each semester now because they set up a, you know, they set something up for it. Yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's sort of build it and they will come scenario, right? Where if you prioritize and, you know, prioritize these values and really create the space and conditions for it, it will happen. Um, and I'm actually, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic though. I think it's, there's a possibility there. So for us, um, I'm actually excited. We're in the conversation with a computer science department because, you know, we kind of keep running the situations where more and more students double major now. And so even for something like UX courses versus their development courses, there's so much crossover that we're hoping we'll spend next year having these discussions of, well, so how can we really, you know, merge some of these needs and how can we make it a little more acceptable across the board? Now, the scenario that you're describing was this platform would have been ideal. I don't know how far we are from it. Um, and maybe that's a model to look into and see if it's adaptable. That would be really amazing. Yeah, I'll have to dig up the name for it later on. Yeah, please. Put in the show notes. All right. So, Yana, before I let you go, is there anything that you are personally working on that you'd like to share or something you want to promote or anything you want to add? Well, absolutely. Um, I would absolutely love to promote the um, Student Web Design Awards for next year, which, um, yeah, I mean, we've taken a break in 2017, but we'll be back full force in 2018 with more categories and um, kind of a renewed and uh, revitalized um, competitions. So I want to encourage everyone of your listeners to look into it and consider applying and make those web design projects <laughs> as much as they can. And so that's the student web. What's the URL? Just for uh, people the, that won't look. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. It's studentwebawards.net. Okay. And roughly, I know you're still in the planning process, but when should they start like looking for that call for entries? <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. So usually in March. Okay. In March, um, February or March, typically I, I would say in Mar- March is a is a good time to look at the call. And the submissions are usually open all the way up until um, end of May, beginning of June. Okay. So everybody, all the listeners, uh, look out for that because that's a, a great place to <laughs> get students to start <laughs> really valuing this stuff. Well, that's all we have time for today on episode 53 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Yana Sakelian, for being so generous with her time. I also want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and the CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases and updates about the podcast, visit the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash designedu today or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes and Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve this show, contact me through the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU Today. Thank you.